Good morning. Can we all stand as we begin to sing and worship together? beautiful name it is 
wonderful name, the power to live righteous and holy lives before you. Thank you for the power to be uh, righteous women, righteous wives, righteous mothers. Thank you for your help that it is, it is in the name of Jesus. We pray that you would bless the rest of this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for the powerful song and for opening us up in prayer. Amen to that. Good morning. Carolyn McCulley. She is a speaker and an author of an excellent book called Radical Womanhood. And in it, she gives a helpful explanation of the history of feminism. Now, we've actually talked about this before in the past, but I briefly want us to review it this morning because I want us to be aware of its influence and the impact that it has had on our thinking. So here we go. The feminist movement in the United States apparently came in three waves, right? The first wave came about in the late 1800s. It was initiated primarily by two women that were working to obtain the right for women to vote and the right for women to own property and, and basically not be treated as property, which were very honorable goals. They wanted a woman to be able to go to court and be viewed as equal with men in the eyes of the law. Thankfully, they were successful. Now, those two main leaders were um, somewhat disillusioned with the church, angry at the church, and so there was not any type of biblical worldview with the movement. But World War I comes along, and that movement kind of fizzles out. But it brings us to our first point, number one on your papers. The first wave of feminism said we are equal with men. Equal with men. It was all about equality. The second wave gets started about 1963. A woman by the name of Betty Friedan, she wrote the book, The Feminine Mystique. The story goes that she was to write an article for her college class reunion, and she discovered that all of her female classmates had become housewives, and they were miserable and bored. She would go on to call that the trapped housewife syndrome, or the feminine mystique. The article would lead to a book in which she would push that women could do better than being a housewife. You would be happier if you were doing something important, so you needed to leave the home and go get a job and find a career. The book sold millions. She became a household name, and guess what women did? They left the home, and they went out and got careers for themselves. Gloria Steinem is from this era, and she would go on to make the famous phrase, or make the phrase famous, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. You don't need a man. Why? Because you can do anything a man can do better, plus you can give birth. Now, um, this was the wave that blamed all of the world's problems on men. 
This was also the wave that wanted to remove gender from all of your literature and books. And it also pushed for the right to control her own body, which was essentially a push for abortion. So here's our next point. The second wave of feminism said, we are not just equal with men, we are the same as men. We are the same. Now, third wave of feminism comes in the 1990s. <clears throat> Bill Clinton is president, and the ladies are watching things like sex in the city. All right, this wave pushed the hypersexualization of women. It also pushed to redefine marriage and the family. The next on your paper, number three, the third wave of feminism said, we are not just equal, we are just as vulgar and promiscuous as men. The second wave of feminism, it opposed pornography. It saw it as exploiting women. The third wave comes along and says, we like pornography. It's not exploiting women because we are just as sexual and vulgar as you. Now, if you can remember, historically, women were known as the fairer sex. Okay, we were seen to be the virtuous gender. We were the ones that took the kids to Sunday school and taught them not to cuss and have manners. And so men were thought to be the gender that was a little rougher around the edges. Women were thought to be more refined and less promiscuous. And the third wave comes along and says, not anymore. We are just as raunchy as you. All right, one Christian expert on the topic made the comment that the feminist movement has so accomplished its goals and so integrated into society that it is no longer really a movement. It's the norm. Everything that I've just described to you is viewed as normal. Your books, your TV shows, your magazines, all of it are going to present feminist teaching as very normal, as very ordinary, as very typical, which means that virtually everything that we go over in our class is going to be counter-cultural. Virtually everything we discuss is going to be in polar opposition with what you have grown up with. Now, why is that? How, biblically, how should, what should our view be about men? What, a, what should our view be about our womanhood? And in particular, how does God define our role in marriage? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. <clears throat> this should be very familiar. Genesis 1, 26 says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, our book had us take note of the word them. You might want to circle it. It's, it's plural. Right now, here's our, our next point, number four. 
Men and women were both created in the image of God and both made vice regents. They are both vice regents. Both are given the command to be fruitful and multiply and both are given dominion over the earth and that's significant. All right, now skip over to chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 18 and this is going to be another familiar passage. Genesis 2.18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had brought every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, we'll stop there. Here's our next point. It's review. Number five, marriage was divinely designed to provide an earthly analogy of a spiritual truth. We talked about this the first week. We said marriage is more than just the building block of society. It's more than a means of bringing you happiness. Now, it may do those things, but marriage is much bigger than that. It is divinely designed to provide a earth, an earthly analogy of a spiritual truth. Now, I want you to keep your fingers here and flip back to see chapter 1, verse 27 again. And I hope that by now you have this verse underlined in your Bibles. It says, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Here's our next point, number six. God created two distinct genders to express his image. All right, two distinct genders. One of the great lies of the feminist movement has been that men and women are the same. We are not. I would suggest you go back and write in big letters, lie, next to point two, the second goal of feminism. God created two distinct genders, and as one preacher put it, for the purpose of efficiency in expressing his image. A recent survey discovered half of all millennials believe that gender exists on a spectrum and should not be limited to the categories of male and female. Okay, in other words, they do not believe verse 27. Another article listed 63 different gender combinations that exist. 63. Facebook now gives you over 50 different gender options to choose from. In India, a third gender was acknowledged by the country's Supreme Court. Did you ever expect this verse to be so controversial? What are you teaching your children? Do they know verse 27? Okay, let's turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 18, we're in Genesis. Two times in this short passage, the woman is referred to as a helper, a helper fit 
for him. She was created to be a helper fit for him. Now, most of us in this room, we have grown up with the second wave feminist thinking that we can do anything a man can do better. Have you ever said or worn the t-shirt that said, girls rule, boys drool? Ever? Don't raise your hand. That was, that's a very second feminist thing to say. The world has been telling us that we are better than men. And so the idea that a woman has been created to be a helper, that uh, comes across usually as very demeaning, very insulting. We hear that we're to be a, a helper role, and we automatically kind of think that that is a secondary role. Now, is it? Should we be insulted and offended with the idea of a helper role. Is that what this passage is saying? Well, if you, if you did the homework, you learned we should not. We should not. The helper role is not inferior or secondary. Now, before we explain that, I want us to clarify what exactly it is that we are to be helping them do. All right, now, are, have we been created to just help men cater to their own selfish needs? Have we been created to just make the lives of men easier? Is that what this is suggesting? Okay, that would be a big N-O, all right? Now, let's, here's our next point. Number seven. The woman has been created to help the man image God and tell the gospel story. We are helping them image God. Now, this is review from our womanhood course, we have been created to help men bear the image of God. Now, do you have to be married to be a helper? Can a single woman help men? Can she be a helper? Well, yes. A single woman with her femininity is going to help men reflect the image of God and tell the gospel story. Now, she may do that differently. She's not in a covenant relationship with a husband, so it may look different, but um, she can still be a helper. Now, I've shared this with you once before, but studying this over the years is changing the way that I interact with men, it, uh, particularly those in church. Now, I, men in church, um, now I am constantly trying to ask myself, okay, how can I be his helper? What is that going to look like in this instance? What can I do to help support his manhood so that together we display the glory of God? You see, the trend today is not to support manhood. The trend today is to redefine it and make them into women. At the time that I was working on this lesson, there was a new show in the works, The Men's Room. That was the name, The Men's Room. It is a men's talk show where men sit around and talk about their feelings. The show is the brainchild of actor Justin Baldoni, who is a loving husband and father and describes himself as a hopeless romantic and a feminist at my core. He claims he is passionate about using his platform to redefine masculinity and empower women. That is a very popular mindset these days. But here's the problem. 
Masculinity has already been defined and it is our job to support it. God's word defines manhood and it is our job as women we are to aid and support men in it. You have been created to help men be men so that together we can image the glory of God. Now, um, we don't have time to have a full-fledged lesson on biblical manhood. There is a podcast on that, and there are so many good sermons out there by men that um, you can listen to. You'd be very wise to listen to that and learn those things. But in a very general sense, we help men by being feminine and supporting their biblical manhood. All right, that's the general explanation of helping. Now I want us to get more specific about helping our husbands that we are in covenant with. Now, um, let's start with some definitions. Each time we see the word helper, it is mentioned, it appears in the Bible with the word fit. Some of your versions may use the word suitable. Okay, but I have this on your papers, the, the Hebrew word. <clears throat> it is konegdo, and it means that which is opposite, that which corresponds. You were not created to be a lesser version of man. Now, you were not created to be a superior version of him either, by the way. You were created to be different. You were created to be opposite. You were created to be corresponding. Now, in the past, we've used the example of a hand in glove. That was, that's how you would explain connecto. You could also do something like this, okay, where you're coming together and you're filling in the gaps. That would be a good visual for connecto. Now, another thing you might think of is music. Instead of having two voices singing the same note in unison, you have someone coming in singing harmony. All right? They're, they're opposites that go together. They're different, but they go together. You have been created to be the harmony, the corresponding part to men. All right, now, the secular world, the secular world is telling you that you have to be the same with your husband in order to be happy. Now, listen, that's unbiblical thinking. Now, granted, it's nice to have common interests with your husband. I, I'm fortunate. My husband and I have many common interests. For instance, we both like food. When, when we travel, we, have a, we, we both like to walk and sightsee, so we have a routine. We, we go, first we eat, and then we walk it off at sightseeing. And all the while, we're talking about the next meal that we're going to have. And we love the Zomato app. We both have that, and we go through that, and we talk about what we want to do. And there's a lot of agreement. We, we can usually decide on what we want to do, and, and I'm probably going to order the same salad dressing he does, and we're both going to ask for lemon in our water. We have a lot of similarities, but we're also very different. He's very, he's very daring and outrageous, and I am very cautious. Um, he is going to be one that notices detail, and he's very observant. You know, I, I could miss it all. He's going to be one that wants to try things and do things on his own, and I'm going to have out the directions, and I want to follow all the steps and rules. So in, in many ways, we're, we're very different. But here's the thing. You were not designed to be the same as your husband's. You were designed to be a complement. You were designed to be different. Now, um, unfortunately for me, I was late in learning this, it's only been in recent years as I've been studying biblical womanhood that I've begun to understand this and actually have stopped trying to change him into me. 
and tried to spend more time encouraging him and celebrating who he is. And let me tell you something. That's empowering. You want to be empowered? I'll give you some advice. Quit trying to make your husbands be like you. Do you realize that the online dating industry, which, by the way, is huge in the United States, it is all based on connecting people that are the same. In that business, finding compatibility, finding happiness in marriage means finding someone like you. You find someone that thinks like you, that does the, things, does the same things that you do, that likes the same things that you do. Now listen, that sounds great on paper, but that's not how God has designed it. Now, he has instructed us to not be unequally yoked. So in that regard, we have to be the same. I want you to be careful. The world is telling you that your sons and daughters have to be the same. The big thing now is that you're to tell your daughters that they need to be playing with blocks and erector sets and Legos and not dolls so that they can grow up and be engineers and that they can grow up and be auto mechanics like their brothers and like men. And see, the thinking here is that in order for them to be significant, in order for them to be equal, they have to be the same. Okay, that isn't biblical. Your significance, your equality, is found in the fact that you have been made in the image of God and that you both were made and given dominion over creation. All right, here's our next point. It's review, but I want it on your papers. Number eight. God created two distinct genders, equal in value, different in role. We are different in role and function, but equal with men. All right, that means the role of helper is not in any way an inferior or secondary position. All right, now, um, there's another way we know that. And so uh, here's our next point. Number nine, the Hebrew word for helper is ezer and is used, to, is used in the Bible to describe God as our helper. The term cannot be demeaning since it's used all throughout the Old Testament to describe God. The word is never used for something negative. Then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a helper. So um, there's nothing wimpy about the word helper. It's a very powerful one, All right? And I want to give you the definition for Ezer, and I have this on your handout as well. Ezer means to support, give aid or assistance to another. It can also refer to a helper or one who assists and serves another with what is needed. All right, let's plug that in. According to this definition, you are to be wives that come alongside of our husbands and give support, aid, or assistance. We are to serve with what is needed. Does that describe your relationship? Now, we've talked about being helpers before, so I thought we would go at this a little differently this morning. I want us to look at helper in the context of covenant. And so, if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel again, 1 Samuel 18. We were here last week. It is the story of Jonathan and David and their covenant of love and friendship that they make. 
First Samuel 18, we're going to start at verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Okay, time out there. He made a covenant with David. What are we to think of when we read the word made? Cut, yes. They're cutting a covenant. They're making a blood covenant together. All right, and here's why. Because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. All right, now we talked about this last week. And we said we can't be dogmatic about it, but this is probably acting out a um, symbolic ritual. In the past, apparently, they would exchange, have an exchanging of robes. All right, now in this case, Jonathan is the prince. He would have worn uh, royalty. He would have worn, worn royal robes. And David would have been wearing the robe of a shepherd. Okay, but when they exchange robes, Jonathan is, in a sense, he is saying, you are putting on me and I am putting on you, and together we are one. Okay, because remember we said covenant was all about oneness. Not sameness, but oneness. All right, now, I want us to focus today on the other things that he gives David. He, it says, he gave him his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Okay, those are weapons of warfare. All right, when you exchanged armor and weapons, you were essentially saying to your covenant partner, okay, your enemies are now my enemies, and my enemies are now your enemies, because together we are one. All right, now listen. Covenant partners never battled each other. Ever. They were always fighting side by side against a common enemy. Now, they may have fought differently, but they battled together. Because they were one. All right. Also, we see Jonathan gives David his belt. Now, the belt was that piece of clothing they would use to gird up, their, gird themselves up. It was also the piece of clothing that held their weapons in place. And so um, it often came to speak of strength. All right. Now, when you exchanged belts, you were basically saying, I will be your strength and you will be my strength. And together we are one. All right. Now. Do we see this aspect of covenant, the exchanging of weapons and the belt? Do we see this in the covenant relationship between a believer and God? Do we see it there? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. When we enter into covenant, his enemies, when we enter into covenant with God, his enemies become our enemies and our enemies become his enemies. He gives us his sword and his bow. He equips us to battle against a common enemy. He gives us his strength. He battles on our behalf. And then we love him with all of our strength. So you learned about those things in the covenant course. Now, do we see this aspect of covenant, the exchange of weapons in the marriage relationship? Absolutely. When Jonathan was giving David those items, he was symbolically saying, listen, when you have a problem, I'm going to be there to support you. I'm going to come to your aid. I'm going to assist you in any way that I can. Why? Because 
We are covenant partners. We are one. Let me ask you, does that describe you? Does that describe your heart attitude towards your husband? What if he loses his job or he gets sick or he just comes home from work cranky or maybe he can't find a pair of matching socks? Is your heart attitude about being his helper? What is the attitude of your heart when it comes to your husband? Are you a helper? Or would competitor better describe you? Or enemy? Or do you try to rule over him? Or maybe you just act independently. If, any of, if it's any of those, understand you're not this. You're not one. You're this. Okay, Carolyn Mahaney. Mahaney, she wrote a book, The Feminine Appeal. And she points out that we are to be oriented first to God and then our husbands. And that, by the way, is how covenant would work. We are first and foremost to God in covenant with him, and then secondly to our husbands. And when we understand that, she says, it easily clarifies our responsibilities. She says, we can determine what we should do and how we should do it by asking ourselves, what will most help my husband? What will most help my husband? Is that how you operate? Is that even on your radar? What will best help my husband? Before you plan something or you do something or you consider something, do you ask, what will best most help my husband? Mahaney goes on to say that when we orient our lives toward God and then our husbands, it helps put an end to sinful comparisons and the need to keep up with some of the other things that we see our girlfriends do or maybe things that you see on Facebook. So instead of think, looking at others and thinking, oh, I need to dress that way or I need to cook that way or I need to decorate that way, instead of trying to be like someone or compare ourselves to them, we stop and say, hey, okay, wait a minute. What would my husband like? What would best help my husband? I suspect if we did that, it would eliminate, eliminate a lot of stress from our lives if we were to do things God's way. Now, Ezer, and Ezer was one that would assist and help and support and do what we needed. I want to spend the remainder of our time getting very specific about this and, and practical, hopefully. All right, here's our next point. The word Ezer is often used in the Old Testament to describe divine assistance of a military nature. All right, in Bible times, military aid was very important. All right, so when Jonathan gives David his armor, his sword, and his bow, he's telling David, your battles are now mine. They're now my concern because I am one with you. If anyone attacks you, it is an attack against me. And so your protection and your strength are now my concerns because I am your covenant partner. 
All right, now, the armor, the bow, the sword, those were military tools. Those are tools that um, Jonathan would have used to protect David, to keep him safe. All right, now, how do we apply this to marriage? What does this have to do with being a helper? All right, one of the primary ways that you will help your husband will be of a military nature. Here's our next point. Number 11, the wife as helper has a military dimension. She protects and strengthens her husband. She protects and strengthens. Remember, our model is God as our helper. Okay? And he helps his covenant partners by protecting them and by strengthening them. All right? Now, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute. I thought men were protectors. You've taught us that men are the protectors. That's their role. Um, I didn't think that was my role. Okay, that's, that's true. Men are the protectors, but you are going to assist them. If you um, wake up and hear a strange noise in the middle of the night, your husband's going to be the one that gets up and takes care of that. He's the protector. He's been wired for it. He's been built for it. Okay, but you are going to help protect from a different kind of invader. Okay, here's our next point. We want to talk about how you will do that. Number 12. The number one way to help protect and strengthen your husband is to pray for him. Is to pray for him. One blogger wrote this. As wives, prayer is our strongest ministry toward our husbands. It should be first and foremost. It is the most powerful and effective service we can offer our husbands. Most effective service we can offer our husbands. She goes on to point out that you are able to pray for your husbands like no one else. You know him. You know what he's going through. You know his needs. You know what his plans are. You know what his weaknesses are. You know what his strengths are. Let me ask you, what are you doing with that information? Do you try to fix him or correct him? Or nag him? Or do you pray for him and trust God to work? Here's our next point, number 13. We help our husbands by respecting him. I was very surprised as I was going through the chapters of this book when we were first looking at it. It did not have a chapter on respecting our husbands. And I thought that was odd. But it's okay because we're going to literally, literally talk about it every week. One of the things that I've tried to do over the years is I'll listen to um, men speak on womanhood and manhood. I like to get a man's perspective. And when you start to do that, you start to hear some major, major repetition. Every sermon, every book, every article, that man is going to emphasize the need for a wife to respect her husband. They will say things like, um, my world, it can be falling apart, but if I know that my wife is supporting and respecting me, I can handle anything. You're going to hear some version of that over 
and over and over again. And they will also make very clear that nothing sucks the life out of a man than a disrespectful wife. You want to strengthen and protect your husband? Respect him. And you make sure he knows that you respect him. Now, some of you might be thinking, that's going to be a little difficult because he doesn't do a whole lot worth respecting. Okay? Is he made in the image of God? Start there. Does he get up every morning and go to work? That's two things. You respect your husband. You start training yourself to think, how can I communicate this to him respectfully? Before you open your mouth, you need to have a respect filter on it and ask yourself, is this going to come across respectfully? Emerson Egerich writes this, men interpret their world through the respect grid. And a wife's softened tone and facial expressions can do more for her marriage than she can imagine. Here's the next thing on our list. We help our husbands by having sex with them. Shanti Feldhahn, in her book, For Women Only, explains how a man's sex life is central to his emotional being. She quotes a man who wrote this, sex is a release of day-to-day pressures and seems to make everything else better. Another man wrote this, what happens in the bedroom really does affect how I feel the next day in the office, end quote. Now the good news is we're going to spend an entire week on this topic. So uh, we have a lot to look forward to. We'll be talking much more about this in the future. All right, next, turn with me to one last passage. Turn with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verse 1, says this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. All right, now there's our word easer. There's that word help. We're told God is our refuge, God is our shelter, all right? The picture here in this passage is men of war who need help, and so they run for shelter, they run for refuge. Now, ultimately, God is that. God is the shelter, God is our shelter, God is our refuge. But when it comes to our marriages, all right, we are going to put some hands and feet to this verse. And so as helpers, we are to be a refuge and a shelter for our husbands. And the best way to do that is to create homes that are shelters and a refuge. Does that describe your home? Or when your husband comes home, does he feel more like he's walking onto the battlefield? When he comes home, does he feel like he's got to work to avoid all the landmines that you have buried? One of the ways that you're going to strengthen your husband, which in turn is going to strengthen your home, is to make your home a haven. Make your home a place where he wants to come home to every day. Make your home a place where he can come home and he can relax and he can be revitalized. Now let me ask you, what would it take for you to do that? 
for you to make that happen. Sadly, I, I did not always do this, but nowadays I make a point that as soon as I hear my husband coming through the door, I stop what I'm doing, I go to the door, I greet him, I, I show him a smile, I put my arms around him, I kiss him, I tell him, I'm glad you're home. I'm, it's good to see you. I asked my husband, how can wives help their husbands? And he gave me a list of things. But one of the things that was very high on his list was being able to come home to a meal after working all day. Now, if you are not already doing this, I want to encourage you to strengthen your husband by having a meal ready for him and a chance for him to sit and relax and enjoy the kids. In hindsight, one of the best things that we did as a family was have a meal ready for dad and then have the family sit down together and enjoy it. Now, I know that many of you, you've got little ones, uh, you've got crazy lives, and getting a meal together on the table is nearly impossible. And I understand that. So I have some advice. And this is some advice that I'm always giving uh, my daughter. And that is this. Always have bacon. <laughs> Always have it on hand. And that way, if you have a crazy day and you don't have time to get anything done, oh, right before he gets home, you get out that pan and you throw on that bacon. And he walks in to the smell. <laughs> you throw on some toast. It's a, it's, it's a man's meal. Listen, remember this. Bacon is a man's chocolate. <laughs> it's, it's a man's chocolate, and it's an entree. So, um, so, so make use of that. Also, I recommend have your table set. Have your table set. There's nothing that is more inviting that says, welcome to your haven, than a set table. Okay? And, and if, if nothing else, just get the toys off it. You know, get the... <laughs> Get the toys off it. I, it's okay. I mean, you might have toys all over the floor. That's okay. But carve out a spot where he can sit and relax and eat bacon. Okay. <laughs> all right. Now, here's my point. My point is that you want to create a home that is his haven, that is a refuge, that is a place for strengthening him. Okay. And here's the, here's the thing. It's a double whammy. Because your kids will benefit from all of this. All right, now some of you might be thinking, but I need that. Everything you've described, I need. I mean, I may not have been out at the workplace, but I've been working all day. I've been wiping runny noses and listening to ki screaming kids. I need him to come home and refresh me and take care of me. How can you expect me to do that for him? Well, that's a good question. One of the things that I pray for you each week is that your husbands would love you like Christ loves the church. I pray that your husbands will treat you like Christ treats and loves the church. Now, we all should be praying that for each other very diligently. Now, I, I know, unfortunately, that, the, that there will be men that don't do that, even good men. So what do we do? Well, do you remember on our first week, we said that oneness in marriage requires dying to independent living. It requires 
laying down our lives. And I told you we would be challenged to do that every week. Well, here we go. This is a case of your husband being irrelevant. You're going to obey your part of the covenant and even if your husband does not and trust God for the rest. Now, I should point out that everything that we've talked about on your own strength, it is impossible to do. Impossible. Everything that we have talked about in this lesson is going to require the gospel working out in your lives. This is not the Garden of Eden. We are sinful, flawed women taking care of sinful, flawed men. And that brings us to our last point, number 15. There is no way that a woman can fulfill her godly role as helper to her husband unless Jesus Christ has first done a work in her. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you will that you will help us to understand what it means to be a helper, that help us to understand that we are equal and we are significant. But Father, I pray that we will learn to be women that are feminine and that support men in their manhood and that we can rightly display the glory of God in our homes and to a watching world that is incredibly confused at this moment. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Ladies, just a reminder, next week we're going to be working on the lesson on finances. I don't know what number that is in your books. Is that nine? Nine. Nine? Okay. Come next week prepared to talk about finances. Okay. You're dismissed.